From Grove Studios in Ypsilanti, I'm John Bomarito, and uh, this is a place that if you're a uh, Michigan area, Detroit, Ann Arbor area, and you're looking for a place to get out of the garage and get into the studio, that's what people are doing down the hall right now. There's a DJ in the studio down the hall uh, practicing his, his skills. There's a band that's loading into the studio even farther down the hall that you might hear a little bit later on, I hope not, but that's what the place is for. They're doing good business between 5 and 11, I'm told. So Grove Studios in Ypsilanti, look them up. This has uh, been my home for the podcast for most of the ones I've done. And I'm happy to welcome to the podcast studio in Ypsilanti, Rebecca Lobby, who's never been here before. Hello! Hello, Rebecca! It's good to see you. It's so good to be here. Welcome back. It's been a few years since we've crossed paths. I think uh, I looked it up, it was 2019 you were last with me in the studio in Ann Arbor when I did radio there. And uh, there was supposed to be a visit after that. There was supposed to be a Nobody's Girl visit at mm-hmm. the Trinity House in Livonia that didn't happen. Something came up. Globally. What was that again? <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know that I love it when people call, say, it was the COVID, or the way they describe it, it's, it was a pandemic, people. COVID is a term that describes, I don't want to go on this path, but COVID was a term of the name of the disease, not the era. That <laughs> so makes it, sense. It's, it's just, it's I personally thing. call it the pando, because I don't like, it's, I like to, I like to just, like, smile a little, so I call it, you know, pre-pando, yeah. post-pando. That sounds more fun. <laughs> Well, again, if, uh, if uh, my research in Wikipedia has things right, you're originally from the Arlington, Virginia area. That is true. That's true. Georgia and Austin and Boston. Boston is where I went to college. In between graduating from high school in Atlanta and uh, settling eventually, as many folks English do, in Austin, Texas. Well, I'm happy to be here today. Uh, we'll find out a little bit more about you and your family uh, and what you're doing next and all the things we're going to talk about in the next five minutes to an hour or so, however long it takes us to do that, but I would like a song first. You may have a song. What song would I like to hear? I'm going to play a song from my newest record. It is called God Away. All right, great. We're lucky Lovey's in the studio on Easter Culture. One, two, Oh, oh, oh. 
Tekka makes a song from Rebecca Lobi and uh, track from her newest album, which was called, oh my gosh, not in front of me. Uh, Give Here goes. Ah, that's all you visited three years ago. Boy. Yes. There was a covers album at least in between. Yes, I released a covers album uh, during lockdown called Second Hand Songs. Yes. So those who are on Patreon. Yay! It's not available for sale. It's not on iTunes or Spotify, but it is available for free on my website. I originally recorded all of those songs for Patreon and then decided to, sort of during the dark times of 2020, 2021, decided to offer it for free to anybody who signed up for my email list. It's really easy to sign up. It's at RebeccaLoby.com. And, uh, you know, I have a background, I'm sure we'll get into this more, in audio engineering. And um, it was just a fun way to use my audio engineering skills and share some mellow acoustic covers at a time when I thought people might be able to use them. It was a nice gift. So thank you. Thank I could say it face to face now. I just thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, something happened between the last time I saw you and today. Somewhere along the line, you got married. Dun, 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 dun. I sure did. Congratulations. A married woman. <laughs> long time coming? Yeah, yeah, my, my husband and I have been together um, since the Stone Ages. Wow, really? <laughs> together, you know, we've been together for 13 years. And, um, you know, although he'll always joke, like, yeah, but she's on tour a lot, so it's more like six and a half. You know, I'm just gone, like, a lot. And for the first, I mean, gosh, I think until the pandemic hit, he and I hadn't ever actually spent a full month together. Wow. Ever. Because, I, I mean, I was playing 150 shows a year. I was on the road 200 days or more every year. Um, so, you know, we, we saw each other a lot and we lived together, but like I was just in and out. So it was really nice having some focused time. Turns out we get along really well. And uh, we've been talking about getting married, but we never had time. And we finally made some time during the lockdown. It was great. And then you did that down in Texas. You didn't like, mm-hmm. travel wherever your family was. No, 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 no. We did it in, in 2020, uh, towards the end of the year, uh, and just did it in our backyard. It was really mellow mm-hmm. and beautiful. And they had yellow cake with chocolate frosting. Mm-hmm. Love it. So, Thank you. Well, let's talk a bit about your background uh, as, a, as a young child. You said two cities you lived in early, Arlington and Atlanta. Yes, my family lived in Arlington, Virginia from the time I was born until I was about eight years old and then we moved to Atlanta and I lived there until I was just barely 17 when I graduated high school and moved away for college. Apparently you favor cities with A's in there. Yes. You're in Austin. What is going on there? <laughs> there was a B in there too in Austin. Um, so, the more formative years would be the eight to sixteen, right? So, I think so. You're you're more of a conscious person during those years. Yeah, it seems like you're you're growing and you're developing your habits and your things. What kind of things did you like to do, and what was your favorite thing to do? Oh, I think I mean I think climbing trees and flying kites are <laughs> always going to be among my favorite things to do. Um, I played soccer. I wasn't very good at it. I was in a dancing group. I was very bad at that. It was a clogging troupe. Here is a table. <laughs> shoes do you have on? I had on, well, right now I'm wearing shoes. I'm on sensible tennis shoes. But for clogging, I wore like little white tap shoes and a petticoat. And I'm so glad that this was before like everything went on social media. There are very few pictures of it. And um, I'm just so happy about it. Now your patrons are going to ask for that. <laughs> yeah, I could probably do a whole post of just embarrassing childhood photos. Um, I also, you know, I have a great, great group of friends. I was in a bunch of school plays. I loved doing that. I was in the choir and I started writing, playing guitar when I was about 11 and started writing kind of bad, corny, preteen poetry right around the same time. And then a few months later, I was like, oh, I could take these bad poems I'm writing and these bad chords I'm barely strumming and put them together and write some bad preteen folk songs. And 
And then it just became my whole life's mission to make more songs and sing them for people. I'm glad you did. I think something that might help us a little bit during our interviews with people is just a little bit closer to you. I would be happy to. I think it just it might cut out a little bit of the extra effect. Oh my goodness. Yay! So, Great. Uh, so, that time, uh, the 90s, mm -hmm. who's, who's the one that's making you say, pick up guitar? <laughs> well, you know, I started listening you know, to like sort of, you know, grunge rock stuff that I got from my cousin, you know. I loved the Nirvana Unplugged record. I loved Live. That record from Copper was great, Smashing Pumpkins, the, the double album. Um, so it was sort of that's where it started, but then it transitioned into sort of this wonderful world of like mid late 90s acoustic kind of folk rock, and many of those artists were women, which was spectacular, you know. And there was Jewel and Sarah McLaughlin, Natalie Merchant, um, I think Amy Mann, Ani DeFranco, the Indigo Girls, Paula Cole, Fiona Apple. I mean, they just went on and on. It was Alanis, of course, not really about Alanis. And so I was listening to all of that, and I really didn't have a sense that that was a moment in time. I just thought that's what music was. And that was a really empowering thing, I think, for a, a middle school and high school aged young woman who enjoyed singing to like have that modeled, that that was just normal. <laughs> That's what music was at the time, and, and that, so I loved all that whole era of music. I didn't know this until I got into commercial radio, but apparently before that time, there was a time they didn't play two female artists on the radio back to back, which is baffling because you had a history of like Johnny Blackberry, other hit makers, like Ronstadt, whatever. But two in a row is like, no, no, can't do that. People will tune out. Oh yeah, believe it or not, there is still a time where they don't play two back to back, and it is 2022. I can't believe that. It's yeah, no, I mean not every radio station. There are radio stations that will play women back to back, but there are a lot that still don't. Especially like not to call them out, but in country radio, and I've seen some great videos of Amanda Shires on tour, and she'll like turn on the country station in whatever town she's in and count how many songs it takes till they play something by a woman and it sometimes is like dozens you know 10 20 and then she'll call and ask to speak to the station manager and she doesn't identify herself she just is a concerned caller calling in to just ask if they realize that they just played 19 men in a row without a single female voice being heard and i mean i can get on a real soapbox about this but i will just say a the airways are owned by the people and the people are 52 percent women so that's something to consider and b i think that for Passive listeners, like kids, young boys and young girls, I think that hearing a more equal balance of voices like gives a strong subliminal message about whose voices are worthy of being heard. And so when that young person is in the back of their parents' car and they hear 19 men in a row and no women, it just sort of reinforces this message that men are the ones who deserve to be heard. And I don't think that's great. So. I disagree. I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> Like, were you about to fight? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Take, take, a, take a look at the guests that have been on the show. <laughs> no, 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 you're good wonderful. Mix. You're such a champion. And if there's if there's a good voice on either side of the aisle, I'm playing it. I'm promoting it. I'm making it hurt. So I can't believe it's still happening. I, I know. I know. Well, and there was, I was telling you before we started, there was this thing that I heard about um, a few years ago. Look it up. Just Google, like, country radio tomato gate. I won't go too deep into it. Just to say that there was, like, a presenter at a country music radio conference who compared playing too many women on the radio into short succession 
to having too many tomatoes on a salad. He said, like, women artists are like the tomatoes on the salad. And his comments were not very well received. No. I hope they threw tomatoes at him, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's go to his house right now. <laughs> I can picture a man doing that and then saying, by the way, will you play some Jason Isbell? That'd be kind of funny. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> play women and, and Jason. All right, so anyway, playing guitar as a kid was obviously something that led you to where we are today, a few years later. Just a couple. Um, and eventually you decided to follow that as a career path. You probably did stuff that wasn't playing guitar as, as a job. What kind of other things did you do? I did. When I was in college, I worked as I worked at my college as um, an office grunt work study. I worked at a bank. I was a bank teller. That was one of my first jobs. I worked at a Whole Foods as a cashier and a bagger. I worked um, at a recording studio when I first got out of school as a recording session engineer and a Pro Tools editor. And that's kind of when my music career started because it turns out that one of the benefits of working in a recording studio is having the keys to a recording studio. And I started uh, recording demos and those demos became the first album and once I had that I started touring. But, um, you know, it wasn't like I started touring and suddenly could support myself as a musician. If anyone figures out how to do that, let me know. But it took me several, many years of trial and error. And so, you know, during those sort of formative years of trying to launch a touring career, I worked at a lot of live events as kind of like a local stagehand, you know, setting up for, you know, a neuroscience convention or, you know, just different conferences and big corporate events. And I would run the audio, I would run the projectors, I would set up the lighting. I set up a lighting rig at a KISS concert once. I did all sorts of weird kind of stagehand work. And that was great because it was freelance and it was all over the country. So I could be on tour and then have like a gap in my tour and then call the staffing agency and say like, okay, I have eight days off on the East Coast. What do you need? And they'd say, oh, we have a conference in Boston starting in three days and it's five day, you know, like load in and I go do it. Be mean like a bunch of giant dudes unloading like a 52 foot truck. And You're not very tall. I am not very tall. I'm also not very strong as it turns out. But and early on in my career as a stagehand, I really tried to like prove that I was just as tough and just as strong as the guys were. And um, I almost injured myself so badly so many times that I finally had to just accept, you know, some limitations and, you know, do the best I could, but also ask for help when I needed it. Well, good thing for the recording studio. That the first album, 2004, is Hey, It's a Lonely World. Hey. I don't think I've ever heard that record. Yeah, no, I'm doing my best to scrub it from the internet entirely. <laughs> if it was up to me, no one would ever hear it. So the songs never make it into a set list? Oh, no. Okay. No, I have a few old, like, diehard supporters who will request one or two songs from the record. But yeah, I was a child. I mean, I was 21 when it came out. I wrote a lot. Of, oh, there's a song in there when I was 16. It, I consider that to be a collection of demos. I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it's out of print. <laughs> I was never a songwriter. I don't play any instruments, but I did write poems to express my feelings as a kid, much like you were probably doing. I still remember one of them, Girl, Girls of My Dreams, a girl I had a crush on. Are you going to share it with us right now? No. <laughs> but I do remember some of the lyrics, and it sort of had a melody. Okay. So, I mean, it probably didn't stand the test of time. I Actually, my, my brother's friend was in a band in Battle of Bands, and they took some of my lyrics and turned it into one of the songs that I've never heard of do. So cool. it is kind of cool, but that doesn't mean the songs were bad or good. They were just songs, right? So that you could possibly find new life in those songs if you. I could get adult. this DJ down the hall to remix some of yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> or you could take you could take a different perspective on those songs if they were. I don't. I haven't heard those. I can't tell. Anyway, I, they're out there somewhere. So, 2010 Mystery Prize seems to be where most of us hear about. Yeah. There's another EP in between it. 
So 2004 to 2010 was an interesting time because I was trying so hard to figure out how to make music my full-time job. You know, I went on my first tour with my first like little record collection of demos came out in 2004. And then I spent the whole next year, 2005, working at Whole Foods, working at the recording studio and just dreaming about going on tour again. And then in two, that late 2005, I went on another little tour. It was just a few weeks in the fall and I went so well and it felt so good. And I thought, this is it. This is what I'm meant to be doing. And I think I did some you know, quick math on the back of a napkin one night at a bar. And I was like, okay, I think I can afford to just live on the road as a touring songwriter. My gigs will pay for gas. I'll get food at the shows. And as long as I'm not paying rent in Boston, I think I can afford to survive. So in January of 2006, I put all my stuff in storage and moved into my station wagon. And I started driving around the country just playing shows. And by April, I realized that my math was a little wrong <laughs> and I had run out of gigs and I had run out of ideas and I was running out of money and I kind of crawled back home with my tail between my legs and you know my dad gave me like two days to regroup and then he came and poked me and was like sounds like someone needs a J-O-B. <laughs> so I started looking on Craigslist and I found some odd jobs and, and then I'd like work an odd job for a month or two, save up some money and then go back and book shows and then I go back out on the road. And so for the next few years, everything I did was just obsessively focused on getting back out on the road, figuring out how to make touring make sense, figuring out how to build sort of my local community. And at that point, that community was in Atlanta. I, I moved back home. I got a room in a friend's house and just figuring out how to make a record that would get heard by people. I went to a lot of music conferences. I went to the ASCAP conference. I went to Folk Alliance. I went to a CD Baby conference. I have notebooks full of notes that I took. A music conference is kind of about like how to get a team together, how to release an album independently. And I was just sort of like scheming and dreaming and planning and working a zillion odd jobs and teaching guitar lessons to kids and selling beer at football games and chauffeuring teenagers and just doing whatever I could. And then in 2009, I got this record that I'd started in 2008, uh, Mystery Prize, mixed, and it was about ready to come out. I was in the uh, New Folk competition at the Kerrville Folk Festival. And I won. I, I did it in 2008 and I lost. I did it in 2009 and I won. And that gave me a little bit of momentum. And I hired a radio promoter, which was something that I had learned at these conferences I went to. Like, if you really want to get your music heard, you've got to hire somebody who has connections at radio stations to get it in front of DJs because they won't open a package from just anybody, you know? So I got a recommendation from a few musicians that I trusted. And I hired a great radio promoter, a woman in New York named Lisa Gray. And she was my only team member at that time. She's lovely, right? She's great. She, she's trusted, I think. And so I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. But I had this like extremely positive, extremely flexible radio promoter. Because, you know, the fee wasn't that crazy. But you also have to pay for postage and get all these albums sent out. And she, you know, was patient, let me pay her over time. And I, again, put all my stuff in storage and moved into the car so that I could afford this radio campaign. And my goal was just to get the album on the Americana Top 40 chart for like a week. I just wanted to like have that feather in my cap, say it had happened. And something about that record in that moment really connected and it got off the Americana Top 40 chart for nine weeks. I sent it to folk DJs in Europe and it got onto the Euro Americana chart for three months. And I ended up getting a record deal in Europe with that album. and. It got onto the desk of some um, some people in Hollywood who were casting for the first season of The Voice, and they invited me to audition for the show, and I ended up 
getting on it. And so it, it was sort of like 2009, 10, 11 was when all of this like prep work I had been doing from 2004 to 2010 like really started to sort of click. So artistically, Mystery Prize is the first record I released that actually like sounds to me like who I am. You know, I did like have an album and an EP before that, but I listen to those and it doesn't feel like me anymore, which is the main reason that I don't make them anymore. Which song from that record would be good to play here? Mystery Price? Yeah. Um, I would say Margarita. Margarita? Yeah. Alright, let's go. Another song. Okay. Towers Ray. Techno Beats going. Yeah, I've got my backing band. Remix. Alright. Ready?
a sunny day. The sky grew thick with thunder and the birds all flew away. They shackled us like killers. We walked in single file. And Margarita, they've been talking, but I ain't heard a word. No, I've been dreaming. story I heard on NPR on an early tour. I was um, driving around in the Northeast and listening to NPR and I heard an interview with a man who had been hired by the U.S. government to translate during a series of deportation hearings. There was a, um, a raid on a meatpacking facility in Iowa. It was a pretty major case because there were like 397 people arrested for working without documentation and facing deportation. And so this translator went to go and translate, um, and he had some pretty serious reservations about how the case was being handled, things were being expedited, the you know, defendants weren't clearly aware of their rights. And um, he thought about leaving out of protest, but decided to stay and be a compassionate presence and helpful, you know, helpful face among the crowd for these folks. And he interviewed them as he was helping translate and shared their stories in a series of essays and on the air. And it was amazing to me hearing stories just about people, you know, one after another after another, living so far away from home and so far away from the people that they love most in the world and working in just truly horrible conditions, doing backbreaking labor, sleeping, you know, in, in crazy, you know, accommodations and making very little money with no worker protections and sending every dollar that they could to their families back home, to the people that they love so much, but never got to see just by the nature of the arrangement because they couldn't leave the country because if they did, they wouldn't be able to get back. And I thought like, what an, I never thought of that before as, in terms of how much love it takes for someone to be willing to sacrifice all of your time and your labor to provide them with a better life when you're not actually even able to see them experiencing that better life, let alone being able to experience it yourself. And it just struck me like that that was an enormous sacrifice and a really beautiful act of love. So I wrote that song, Margarita, um, 
as a tribute to that love. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't know that story. <laughs> I don't know if you tell that story on stage or not, but I didn't know that story. <laughs> Well, let's back up just briefly to The Voice, because it was a blip. It was The Voice. Yep. It was the first season, you know, the first couple Uh-huh, episodes. yeah, it was on the first episode yeah. of, the, of the show in America. Did you make Adam's team? So? I did, I did. I was on Team Adam Levine. A couple of our Michigan friends, Leif Alsadi and Joshua yeah. Davis, both on Adam's team at some point. We'll have friends in the year for sure. What did you take away from being on the show that actually has helped you? Oh, what a great question. Um, I mean, there was some, like, sort of obvious top level things you know i got a, i sold a lot of cds that summer i got sold a lot more tickets to my concerts i got a lot of people in my newsletter i you know went from 800 twitter followers to 8,000. you know like really like kind of numerical gains that can be easily seen by anybody who's looking but really your question was about what helped me and the answer is that performing for my blind audition and my battle round were so scary that was such a scary experience that, you know, if you go back and find my blind audition, you can hear, you hear my voice shaking and you might think it's vibrato, but it's actually my whole body just trembling out of terror. And it was funny because it was so scary and the consequences, there were no consequences. It was like, I just wouldn't get picked and I just wouldn't be on TV. Not a big deal. I didn't really want to be on TV in the first place. I just kind of went because I thought it sounded you know, like an interesting way to meet some people. And, and next thing you know, I was on stage face-to-face -face with Adam Levine and Christina Aguilera and all that. But I already had a career at that point. You know, I'd already just barely cracked into making music full time. I had, a, like I mentioned, a label deal in Europe. I was supposed to actually go on my first ever tour in Europe the day after the blind auditions. So if I hadn't made my blind audition, I would have just gotten on a plane to Amsterdam and gone over there and and toured for three weeks. I mean, the plan B wasn't bad, you know. And yet, it was so scary. And what I realized in retrospect is that. The experience of performing on The Voice was so judgment-oriented. You know, I was there to be judged by the producers and the lawyers and the audience, you know, paid extras in that like little arena, and the millions of people watching at home, and the four celebrities whose job was to judge us. And the feeling of judgment was so antithetical to what makes me feel comfortable creating and sharing art and it was very it was very difficult very nerve-wracking very surreal but since then every time i've gotten on stage to perform in front of an audience it has been joyful there's been nothing scary about it there's no way that an audience of art in ann arbor could scare me because i realize they're not there to judge me even if I make a mistake, that's just like a weird little foible that's like, oh, well, that's why we come to concerts and don't just sit at home listening to Spotify all night. You know, we want to see real humans doing this. And I realized that, you know, a, an audience that comes to a concert to experience live music is there for the same reason that I am. It's there to experience love and connection and creativity and art and joy and sorrow and all of it together. And so that has been my biggest gift from The Voice is basically Maybe you realize how good I have it as a Tory folk singer. <laughs> Maybe I have a little confidence. Maybe so, yeah. I think it's sort of, you know, you talked about the 10,000 hours, and I think it sort of like busted me up a few thousand hours of experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't pay attention to everybody who's been on the show, so this might be a general statement, but I do notice several that get high up don't seem to like take the momentum and go anywhere. Right? But you, like what, you dove right back in. You started making records, and yeah. every other year, for every year you make something new for us. So and that's what I, that's admirable. 
well, it's hard to build a career. And again, like thinking back, like prior to being on The Voice, I've had seven years of trial and error and researching and trying to figure out how to make it work as an independent musician. So I was already kind of working on that. And I also went, so I was able to apply those things that I had learned and, you know, experienced and observed and use sort of this bigger platform that I had for a moment to apply those lessons I had learned. But also, I was already, I had already figured out a path to make some money and to find an audience as a songwriter and a singer without being on The Voice. So I think that a lot of people that I, that I know of who have done shows like that, you know, go into it thinking that is their avenue for becoming a musician, a professional musician. They don't see another path. And so, you know, it added sort of like a level of like, um, I don't know if desperation sounds bad, but almost panic to their performances and to the experience. Cause it was like, this is my chance. And if I, if they don't turn around for me or if they send me home, then I don't get to be a professional musician. And I had a lot of feelings wrapped up in being on The Voice, but I didn't, they, I didn't feel like they could take that away from me. And so, yeah, I think that's the biggest difference is that some people go through the show thinking that that's the only path towards a, a musical profession. And I think that the people who come out of it swinging and who come out of it like releasing stuff are people who were sort of already going to do that. You were already driven. Yeah. You already had the drive to, to succeed. Are you more comfortable in the 100 to 400 scene rooms than you were on stage at a large venue like that one? I mean, what, what was your aspiration going in? Did you want to play big venues or were you always thinking listening rooms anyway? You know, I love listening rooms and small theaters. You know, my goal is. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I admire the, can I say how I'm saying yeah. it? I admire the hell out of Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, I'm, it's amazing watching her maneuver in the business world, but I don't want that career. You know, like if you handed it to me, I'd just be freaked out. You know, it's, that's a level of scrutiny that I, I don't care to, to endure. But um, I love performing for 300 people <laughs> who laugh at my jokes and clap at my songs and give me energy to give back to them. It's. It's an exhilarating high. I love it so much. So, you know, that's kind of my goal. I, you know, I, I let go of any, like, any goals I had about being like a big rock star on the cover of Rolling Stone or whatever. That was when I was a teenager, but I've moved way past that. Very well, and you're doing it just fine because you're still on the road all these years later. <laughs> still crazy after all these years. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thanks for writing. So obviously it takes talent to succeed and carve out a career in the music industry like you have, but how much of what happened to you Happen because I'm just going to use an example of somebody like somebody like Alice Paul lifted you up. You can say yeah. anybody else that lifted you up. Like how much? How much of it was you just being you, and how much of it was somebody saying, "Hey, I've got this artist I want you to know about." I think it's all of it. You know, um, Ellis actually has a great analogy. He talks about all these experiences that we have in our career as being building blocks. And you know, and he said when he took me on the road with him, I was his opener for two years in 2013 and 14. He said, you know, this experience of opening for me, this is one of the building blocks in your career. And at that point, it was one of the bigger ones because it was an introduction to, you know, 100 to 200 people a night in 50 to 100 markets around the country, you know? And, I mean, you can't pay for that kind of exposure, you know, that kind of opportunity. And that happened because um, after I was on The Voice, I was able to find a manager. That manager worked also with Ellis Paul. The two of them decided it would probably be a good idea for me to get some experience and exposure to audiences by opening for him. I played, I kind of auditioned. I played a couple of shows on the road with him. And after that, he, 
I guess liked what I did, saw some potential, and enjoyed being around me enough to want to spend countless hours in the car together, and invited me to, to be his opener on the road. And that definitely was just as helpful, I think, as being on The Voice, because it introduced me kind of intimately to people who were already going out to hear music. The train, we get the train too. The Sorry. train refrain. <laughs> oh, it's great. This is great. There's a lot going on. Things are happening in Ypsilanti tonight. It's, it's happened. <laughs> So anyhow, being introduced um, by some by a trusted artist and him saying, I, I believe in this person enough that I think you're going to enjoy her, got me into so many people's iPods, you know, got a lot of, got my CDs in a lot of people's houses, got a lot of names on my email list. And I still build on that. And people still come out to my shows now, seven, eight years later, because they were first introduced to me by him. Were there others that did that for you besides Ellis? He was the most, I've opened for him the most. And now is a point in the interview where I should mention that I am getting over COVID. So my memory's still a little fuzzy. <laughs> so it's okay. There are gonna be some answers where I'm just like, uh <laughs> I, I'm not getting over it. I still have some fuzzy memories too. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Well, this seems like because I've met you a few times and I know just how extremely nice of a person you are, I feel like you would do that for somebody else. Have you done any mentoring in that way? Have you taken artists on the I have. You know, I haven't taken anyone on the road, partially because I want to get a little farther along. I want to have more to offer before I do that. You know, it's like some of my shows are still kind of light, you know? Like, I'll just be honest. You know, it's like I can, I have plenty of markets where I can sell a good number of tickets, but I'm not at the point where it's like that every night. And so before I, like, took somebody with me and said, like, here, all this could be yours. <laughs> like, I just like well, for it to be a more consistent experience for them. But I, what I like to do is I have, I have mentored um, some younger artists and I don't mean younger numerically. I just mean, you know, for people Less who are forming their careers um, with sort of consults, you know, and I even, you know, for a little while people would ask me, cause I, I think that I, I work hard and I work very visibly so I have like a reputation in the singer songwriter community for being like a kind of hustler, hardworking musician. And so I would get calls from people asking if they could consult with me and like pay me X number of dollars to like chat for an hour about career stuff. And I tried that, but I really didn't like it because I don't like, I would just rather talk on the phone with a friend and brainstorm when it, when it becomes about money, it, it just feels like less fun. I feel self-conscious about whether my advice is good enough and, and takes the fun out of it for me. But I do love to just brainstorm about the music business. So I've done those kinds of things for younger artists many times where, you know, we'll get together on the phone and, and brainstorm about, about their upcoming release. And maybe some of my ideas are helpful and that, that makes me happy. With no offense to others, are there any that you've spoken to that you're like, oh my gosh, you really have to hear this person, a person that you want to introduce me to? Oh, you mean just musicians I love? Yeah, well, people, other like the kind of people you might have mentored or have mentored in this conversation that you think I should hear. Oh, well, I mean, I can't in any way take credit for her current success, but if you're not listening to Brittany Ann Tranbaugh, I think you absolutely should be. What's your last name? Tranbaugh, T-R-A-N-B-A-U-G-H. Brittany, I met her when she was a teenager. Um, she was coming to Folk Alliance and stuff 10, 15 years ago. And she was doing sort of the singer-songwriter thing and, the, and going to college and whatnot. And I think she got a little burnt out or disillusioned on music or just wanted to do something else for a while. So she's been doing other stuff for about 10 years. And then uh, she wrote a little batch of songs. And last summer, someone sent me some demos she had made. And the songs are just crushers. They are so, so good. And um, 
she and I had a phone call, and I don't know if you'd call it mentorship or just two friends catching up, but it was so good to talk to her, and we talked about her upcoming release, and she put out an EP this year, and she just did everything so well, you know, she, and she, she made some great videos, and she made some really smart moves, and she entered a couple of the songs in the John Lennon songwriting competition and won the grand prize. So, you know, again, I can't take any credit for it at all, but I am cheering for her loudly and joyfully, and uh, I just want everyone to hear what she's doing, so that's a high recommendation. Her song, Quarter Life Crisis Haircut. Out here. I, I put that on actually. I was on, on the road this weekend with a guy named Jesse Rubin, and I have an ongoing playlist on Spotify called Cool as Folk, and it's just sort of a repository for all my favorite songs. Like when I tour with someone, like I'll put their favorite song that I've stuck in my head on the playlist, or if there's an artist I hear that I love, I'll put their favorite song or Dear Old Friend or you know Treasure Hero, whatever. So it's it's a long playlist, and I just put it on shuffle and have it rotating almost all the time. And I was driving with Jesse, we've been listening to songs for days, and I put on Britney's song, Quarter Life Crisis Haircut, and it starts, and he like puts down his phone and, you know, listens more intently, and then she starts singing and gets to the first person, and he sits up straight and goes, who the hell is this? <laughs> Which I think is a pretty that's, amazing response. That's a response, yeah. Yeah. That's what music's supposed to do. Yeah. So, we briefly glazed over the Berkeley experience. Mm -hmm. Just because it was there in the history. Just like my eyes were glazed over the whole time I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, there must be something that you took from that that you use every day. Oh, certainly. So much. I mean, I studied, gosh, <laughs> studying at Berkeley is like drinking through the fire hose. You know, they have you take so I mean, I took 12, maybe 13 classes my freshman, first semester of freshman year. Because they have a lot of like half credit classes or one credit classes and take 16 credits. And so, I, I took a ton of different subjects, and every semester I was taking, you know, 8, 10, 12 classes. And so I studied so many interesting things. I mean, the music theory and the ear training and the harmony and the arranging, like, all of that was really foundational, fundamental. And I went into school not knowing much of that stuff. Still don't, to be honest, but I did my best. Um, and then I also, you know, I took some keyboard classes. I took some, I was a vocal principal. I took years of voice lessons. I took ensembles. I took, um guitar for the non-guitar principal, so I learned a little bit of guitar while I was there. Most of what I do is self-taught or taught by my dad or my middle school music teacher. Um, and then, of course, I studied audio engineering, and I spent three years just immersed in the music production and engineering program. And I learned all about, you know, studio equipment and gear. I worked on the tech crew at school, repairing gear. And I learned a ton about, you know, just the process of making records, both as an engineer and as a producer. I also took some classes in the songwriting department, which I found to be really interesting, and in the synthesis department, which was more like synthesizers and composing using electronic music, like our DJ friend down the hall. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I dove in just head first. I loved my time in college, and it was really just a lot of fascinating, fun information. In the songwriting part, do you consider yourself more of a singer or a songwriter? Which, which... I consider myself mostly a performer. The part that that I derive the most pleasure and meaning from is somewhere between singing, songwriting, and guitar. It's like in the middle of the triangle. It's that moment where I'm taking all those things and synthesizing them into a package that can be then delivered to the earballs of the waiting audience. Earballs. <laughs> Your holes is another way. Yep, yep. I just love that moment where the song leaves my body and enters theirs. You know, it's like that. There's this moment of alchemy. Yeah. 
where it goes from being my song to being your song. And, you know, I write a song and it's about, you know, my experiences or observations and it's filtered through my life of, you know, lived experience. But then when it goes into somebody else's ears, it becomes filtered through their lifetime of experience and observations and it becomes their song and it becomes unknowable to me at that point because it's, it's theirs, it's about, it's, it's about how it applies to their life and that's something that I won't ever know. And I just, that moment of transfer is so powerful to me. That's what I love most. Have you, obviously, anything you do for 18 years, you're going to get better at. What, what have you noticed about your songwriting that is better now? What, where is your confidence level on better doing this now? Well, I know I know my voice a lot better. I mean, as a as a writer and as a singer, um, and my voice has matured. The voice is a really interesting instrument. You know, it's it grows with you. It's 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 made of your own tissue. You know, so it it's not like a guitar. I mean, even guitars mature over time, and the wood hardens, and the resonance improves. But the voice grows and ages as your body grows and ages. And I think it generally moves in a really beautiful direction. You know, it, it deepens, it expands. And I feel like my voice, you know, I can I can use it differently. I can sing lower, I can sing higher, I can I know where I can bring power and I know when it feels better and works better to pull back. And so yeah, that I think is probably the top thing. Would you like to sing lower high now? Yeah. <laughs> well, what a good question. What should I sing? What should I sing? All right. If I was gonna request one. Oh, what would that be? Well, what were you thinking? Like? I was thinking like Louise. What do you want to get? Fly. Fly. Oh, sure. I've been avoiding the really quiet ones because yeah, of these they, jabronis. Yeah. yeah. They've quiet now. They thought it would be our finish. So yeah. Let's so let's if they take a smoke break, we'll dive straight into a ballad. How does that sound? Yeah. Well, let's go. <laughs> All right. I'm going to play you a song I wrote with my friend Luke Jackson one night. Uh, we had been on the road. And for weeks at that point, and I was doing all the driving because he's from England, that's a long story, but um, I was really tired one night and I asked him to get out the guitar and just entertain me. And he pulled out the guitar in the front seat and started noodling. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's just a song idea. And so then we, I was like, well, let's write this song. So we started writing the song together. By the time we got where we were going, which was Richmond, Virginia, we had written this song called Lake Louise.
one that definitely shows off your voice. It's beautiful. Rebecca Lobby's in our studios, Lake Louise. Uh, Acoustic Alternatives. The studio is Grove Studios in Ypsilanti, again, a place that is a rentable space for folks to uh, practice their skills, whether they may be DJ or band and otherwise. I would give you a tour if it wasn't full today, but pretty cool place to do your thing. So. Tell me a little bit about the, the Louise Grove project that's developed over time. Like, how did that come about? Sure. Well, it started just as a one time tour um, with myself, Grace Pettis, and Betty Sue. And uh, we got our booking agents together and decided to do a three-week run across the East Coast, kind of from Boston down to Atlanta, and then around Texas and Oklahoma, kind of like strong markets for all of us. And the idea was that we could introduce our audiences to one another's music and sort of play bigger stages and have bigger fun. So um, we did that, and it went incredibly well. And this funny thing happened while we were preparing for the tour. We got together to write together at a, and some friends of Grace's who owned a recording studio that had some artist suites for you know lodging offered to let us stay there. So we went and stayed the night and did like a little 18 hour writing retreat. And during that time we wrote two songs, three songs, three songs. And um, the next morning we played them for the owners of the record label and for the, the recording studio. And it turns out they just started a record label and they offered us a record deal. So we ended up um, signing a record deal and recording an album together before we had even played a show together. And then when we went on that tour, we had a little EP to sell, which was really exciting. And then uh, we decided to uh, try writing a full length. And then we, you know, the deal included the option to record full length record if we wanted to. We decided to go for it. So we spent a lot of 2019 writing and recording and wrote a patch of songs that I'm just so proud of. And by that was supposed to come out in the June of 2020, and it ended up getting postponed till summer of 2021. And that's kind of where the story loops off for now. We we had a, a big album release in July 2021, and um, our tour had gotten scheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled, and unfortunately was supposed to happen kind of right when Delta, the Delta variant was peaking. And so we ended up canceling most of that tour as well. And so for now, we're just kind of like waiting to see what happens in the future. It can happen again. Yeah, it can absolutely happen again. We're just waiting until the pandemic is all the way in the rear view. And similarly, another cool thing was the event of the Circle Game, which could have also turned into a tour if you wanted it to, I think. That would be such a fun tour. Sign me up. It was me, Liz Longley, and Heather Maloney. Just some of the most brilliant. Yeah. They were so good. And um, we did a, we're all three creators on Patreon, and it's sort of a, a summer project in 2021. We did an online show in which we sort of introduced each other to one another's audiences on Patreon. And we did a, uh, we recorded a remote collaborative cover of the song Circle Game by Joni Mitchell. And honestly, like I listened to that recording just for fun because mm -hmm. Liz and Heather sound so beautiful and singing in three part harmony with them was a real delight. I think that Liz is probably with me because she's stuck home with the baby. She's <laughs> checking this out because maybe she does, I don't know. Get that into it. That would be really cool. Heather's new live album is great too. She's so phenomenal. They both are. What, what a nice trio that was. I'm really excited to see that. I'm like, whoa, all three people over there like get together and do this thing. It was a blast. It was a real blast. So you're touring, you're currently finishing up tour or in the middle of tour with Jesse Rubin? I just did a little four show run with him. Uh, Jesse Rubin's a great songwriter from Brooklyn who I actually befriended remotely during the pandemic, funny enough. We were supposed to originally tour together. Um, in the May of 2020, something that I think my booking agent or manager had kind of set up with him, and um, and it got canceled obviously because everything did, and then we just we just started.
started like connecting on Zoom and we did some co-writing together and played some online shows together and just sort of really hit it off and we just met a few months ago in person for the first time and it felt like we were already old friends. It was really funny. We went out to dinner and we're like, I can't believe this is the first time we're meeting. It was so funny. And um, so we just did four shows and it was a lot of fun and I hope we get to do more together soon. A little bird told me that he said that you're so nice that you must have a dark side. What is your dark side? Who is it? Okay. Um, I'm a little sarcastic. I don't know. I think no one person is just one thing, you know? So it's like, I am nice because, um, because why not? Because I worked in customer service in my early 20s and I saw how I, I am a super empath. So I soak up other people's energy really easily. And like somebody who came in and was mean or surly could really send my day in a negative direction. And somebody who was really kind and nice could send my day in a positive direction. And then I would have more positive energy to give to the people that I met later in the day. And so I just made a really early resolution. I was probably 20, 21 years old. And I just decided to be aggressively nice to every person that I met, especially those working in customer service, just in, just in the hopes that it improved their day a little bit and gave them a little bit of good energy to work with for the people that they met next. I think you will agree with me. Because I think, because I worked my first job when I got high school, it was record retail. I worked at Rutgers for 10 years, which expanded my music immensely. I think it should be required that kids should work at least a year of retail so they know how to treat people. Yes. Yeah. If I hadn't done that, that would not be the same as you in that empathic way when you're, when you're in that other side, on the other side of the equation. Like, if you're at a restaurant and you treat your waiters like shit, you, yeah. you know what it's like to be treated that way by a customer. So you, yeah, it's, it's like conscription, but they have to work for like one year folding pants at the Gap and yeah. one year as a waitress at Applebee's. Like wait on people on Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, or working at the bank when I was young. I mean, that was formative because you know people when you're standing in between them and their money, they treat you like an obstacle or like a machine. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting way to, to see interact with people. Spend a lot of time on the road. What is your most favorite and least favorite? Most favorite thing, hands down, are the people that I get to meet. I, I met a, a man from Iran one time at a gas station who was on a six-month trip around the U.S. And he told me that his favorite thing, he'd been to Niagara Falls and the Tetons and, you know, all, all of it across the country, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Yosemite, all of it. But he said his favorite thing was the people that he met because when you meet the people, you see the country. And that really stuck with me. And my least favorite thing is definitely learning how to use a new shower every day. <laughs> Total drag. Yeah, I don't, I don't do a lot of vacationing, but I, I hate when I get somewhere. I'm like, oh, how does this work? I can't get in the right temperature. Every day. Uh, so, one of the big things that I think is probably a very important thing right now for you is Patreon. And many guests that I have on the show are turning to that as an additional source, maybe the necessary source of income as we have now with the shows as we used to. Absolutely. People are still being a little hesitant. I'm going to fewer shows just budget-wise and I have less money, so um, there are less opportunities. But as the person who receives the money, that's your job. And to, to play for us is your job. So Patreon seems to fill that gap. Yes, absolutely. I mean, making your living on people's expendable income is precarious at times like these. And, um, and especially with events that require people to go out in public, because like you, you, you just hit it right on the head. I mean, between the concerns about the pandemic, financial concerns, and just habits changing, people aren't going out as much. I'm not going out as much. I get it. But, um, I don't go to live music every day to make it Right. 
Right. So that's where my happy place. Totally. So Patreon has absolutely gotten me through the last two and a half years. And I've had a Patreon page for five years. And when I started it in 2017, I think I started it because I thought it would be just as a wise business maneuver to like open up an additional income stream. And what I realized immediately is that it was so much more than that because it's a really direct way to connect with people who are most excited about your music. Or at least that's what I found it to be. It's like suddenly I had just like an eager and excited audience of people who wanted to hear what I was up to. And that really lit me up. And it's so nice, there's no algorithm, there's no Mark Zuckerberg, you know, there's there's no, you know, posts getting buried. It's just I want to share music and people want to hear it and we can directly communicate about it. And it feels so good. And it's giving me a sustainable salary for being a musician for the first time in my life. And it's indescribable how helpful it is. You've been very smart about it. I'm not 100% sure, but I think you're the first person I have supported on that oh, platform. Because you made it so reasonably. First started at that dollar level yeah. for each video. I'm like, well, I'm more interested in whatever job you she's going to give me. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then you made it like a $3 model, which was like, that's great, because I'm getting at least a song every month or maybe more frequent than that sometimes, and that made it worthwhile. And some of the other people I support gave good things, but they're more, they're higher price. So it's like, how oh, long can I really support you at $10? I want to support you, it's, it's a lot of money for I mean, I will always have, you know, a lower end option, a $1 or a $3, because I support a lot of people. I support almost 50 at this point. I see that, because every time you sign up, I get a notification. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. That's great. <laughs> I admire that about you. So I support a lot of folks on Patreon, and you know I, I support most of them at the lower end because otherwise I'd be spending hundreds of dollars a month, and I can't do that. But I like to to share, you know, I believe the platform, and I like to share and share and support other people's efforts. And your letters to us are so very well written. Thank you. And the answer is I hope so. I'm working on a few things. Well, it's not going to get any quieter. I would love for you to more Sunday to get I'm so sorry this has never happened. This bad. Mm. And that, I, mean, I guess, all the way from the town, Texas, most of the show. Don't worry. On behalf of me, you should just put the whole thing Don't beat yourself up. Do you want to hear about my ridiculous thing that happened today? Yes, I do. I was going to so. say your bad day off. So, oh no, I'll talk about it right now. So, um, I think that it's, it's, it's salient to the times we're having. So, um, as I mentioned, I had COVID a few weeks ago, I, I, I think just about a month ago, and was when I was positive, and I've been negative for weeks now. And so this is my first time out on the road since I had COVID. And I knew I had a little bit of like kind of brain fog, like before I left home, I was having trouble like remembering words a little bit. Um, you know, I, like I think like, oh, I need to go grab a, shoot, what's that word? It's in the drawer next to the spoons, it's a fork. You know, like that kind of thing. It's kind of scary, honestly. But um, it's been getting better week by week and I didn't really think of it in terms of how it would affect touring. But when I got to the airport on Thursday, I opened up my wallet and didn't have my driver's license. I left it at home. So I was able to get on the plane because I had my global entry ID and my husband overnighted me my my driver's license so I could rent my car from when I got to Ohio. And so then I was like, okay, goofy me, whoops. And then on Sunday after the show, um, we left and got to our hotel. 
and the host texted us a photo of all of my gear, my microphone, my tuner, my GI. I had left it all on stage and we we're like, okay, oops, silly me. So they brought it by the hotel, no big deal. So then today we load out of the hotel, this is in Lansing, load out of the hotel, I had a luggage cart, I unloaded my stuff into the car, we get in the car, we start driving, get all the way to Detroit, I drop Jesse off at the airport, I go to meet my sister, I need my AirPods, I go to get my purse and get my AirPods and my purse is not in the car. And I called the hotel and asked if they had my purse. And she was like, I was like, she said, I said, did I happen to leave a purse on a luggage cart? She's like, I'm not sure I haven't seen it. And then she said, wait, is it a black bag? And I said, yeah. She said, I can see it out the front door. It's still out on the sidewalk. She said, I'm not allowed to leave the front desk, but let me go ask about how to go get it. So the guy goes and gets it. He comes back and she says, you said you're a musician, right? And I said, I said yeah. And she said, did you happen to also leave a guitar here? Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. That's when I was like, Oh, I'm maybe not okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know, it's kind of scary. So, um, luckily, my sister was a really good sport and just drove back to Lansing with me. So we got a lot of good, like, sister time yeah. in the car. We drove back to Lansing. And it was weird. I was like, but I thought I had just left my purse, which was, by the way, full of cash because I had all the money I made this weekend in it. I was actually kind of calm. I was just like, oh, well, that was dumb, but I'll go get it. But when I found out I left my guitar and that I hadn't noticed, that I like searched my car looking for my purse and didn't notice that my guitar was missing. And that's when I felt like just like ice cold dread all over my body. And I just, I don't know, I actually wanted to tell you about it and put it in the podcast because it's real. You know, yes. we're like living through a pandemic that has different, you know, the illness has different effects on everyone. And I'm less than a month out and I hear from a lot of people that it takes a month or three months to like regain brain function and memory and all that stuff. I mean, a friend was just telling me today that she felt it took a whole year before she was whole again. And I was thinking like, I'm like, I have a year. <laughs> You're remembering the lyrics to your songs pretty well. So I know. And I, guitar chords. And... Yeah, no, they're all in there. I mean, the song, and that's the thing is that the songs are like, what feel the most like me, you know? So anyhow, thank well, you for letting me vent about no, that. It was, a great, a, it was a great story. It, it was wild. I couldn't believe it happened. And I got to the hotel and they had my, <laughs> I asked for my guitar and they had the, the purse was like locked up. But they asked if I had my ID, and I was like, no, it's in my purse, you guys have that too. And he's like, well, how am I supposed to know it's your guitar? I was like, I could show you like a hundred videos of me playing it, and I know the serial number, and I know the guy who made it, I have him on speed dial. Like, he was like, all right, fine, you're going to be a real pain in the ass. So he gives me my guitar, and then they get my purse, and the, the woman who had, like, when I called, she was so nice to me, and she put it somewhere very safe, and I told her, I was like, listen, I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of cash in it, like, can you keep it with you until I get there? And so she had, she had gotten off shift. She'd put it somewhere safe. She was just getting off. So I found her. And once, you know, I got the purse, I tipped her with a hundred bucks. Because I was like, this would all be gone if it right. weren't. You know, we definitely get this money. That's get more. Yeah, exactly. So anyhow, I'm going to play a song I wrote for myself a few years ago. The title track of the next record, Game of Ghosts. Sure, if you're that strong, 
not disturbing your neighbors. Grove Studios in Italy, if you want to look it up, if you're a musician with the original Detroit, Ann Arbor, Dixie area, this is a perfect place to do that. No one's going to come knocking on your door or call the cops on you because that's what this place is called. Great to see you. So great to see you too. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a treat. My pleasure. I look forward to what is next? What is next? Is there a record in the works? Great question. I'm writing. You know, I didn't write a lot during the thick of the pandemic. I was just sort of focused on surviving. But um, my creativity has been waking up lately. I've been writing more. It's been really exciting. And so I'm, I'm writing. I'm kind of revamping my home studio and uh, going to be recording demos there and then hopefully traveling to Atlanta to work on a new record pretty soon. I'm glad to hear you said the word record. I think some of your fellow musicians are, are making the album up going fast. Yeah. It's you release singles, I might see them, but I might never buy them. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I'll, I, I get it. I get why the singles thing is happening. Um, it's because of the way that Spotify is structured, and that's fine. But that's not the art form that interests me. You can't sell a single in a show. <laughs> that's true. All right, coming up soon on the podcast, we're gonna have Bob Burbank from the local music scene. He's friends with Houston Bell. Rebecca Logie.com? It sure is. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, R-E-C-C-A.